Reyoso, and welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 187, The Glorious Revolution. At the death of Charles II in 1685, England and Wales found themselves led by his younger brother, King James. James II was the first monarch of England since Queen Mary to reign as a Catholic one, something that irked at least some, probably most, of his subjects. Yet, many greeted his ascension with joy once again. The old loyalty remained high. Much of the gentry in Wales continued to hold the Stuarts in high regard, even when some Welshmen were to lead a rebellion in 1685, such as the Monmouth Rebellion. These, however, were quickly dealt with, and both the populace and the government were throwing the book at them. James initially had the support in all of the countries in which he reigned. It was only as time passed, and it was becoming apparent that James was seeking to create a space for the Catholics to return to the public square, that things started to get very dangerous in this period of what he called tolerance. In a modern sense, this would likely be seen as an obvious and necessary move. Our belief generally that tolerance of one's belief is what allows secular societies to function well generally. However, this is not then. Richard Thomas Pugh, a Baptist poet from the Breckenshire region, considered the king to be an instrument in the God's hands to give us a lovely, likable freedom by a strong, unshakable declaration. Not all was rosy for the king and his subjects. In a religiously fractured kingdom that had just fought a war over religious rights that ended with the death of his father, maybe James was too convinced of his own ability to rule without the consent of the governed, something that was becoming very popular in Europe. For some in Wales, the verbal and physical battles that had taken place over the various forms of Protestantism were bad enough. The idea of a return of the Catholics to the discussion was a bridge too far. Did the king not remember it was the Catholics, after all, that had tried to kill his grandfather? James, however, had spent time in France, and during the family's exile, over time served with Irish soldiers in France and Spain, and it was this exposure that introduced him to the Catholic beliefs. He and his wife, became believers, and shortly after, James took the Catholic Eucharist. In either 1668 or 1669, thus converting to Catholicism. This conversion was kept secret for almost a decade as he continued to attend Anglican services until 1676. James's conversion was made public before his ascension because of a law known as the Test Act, which demanded that men working in positions in either the military or other high offices had to renounce Catholic practices and take Anglican Eucharist, proving their loyalty to the faith. James refused to do so, thus outing himself as a Catholic while under leadership of his brother, Charles II. This belief, however, was measured against what seemed like a move towards a more tolerant rule. James projected himself as a willing to give all parties a chance. He associated with Anglicans and French Protestants. He appointed dissenters to positions 
which did not sit well with the Tories who had supported the crown during the years in exile and in the Restoration. James began also appointing Catholics to higher positions in an attempt to show that each side could live with the other and that the Catholic minority could be respected and not feared. Obvious to any history since Henry VIII, this was a folly. No one outside of a believing Catholic or true Jacobin loyalist could have thought that this would be anything other than terrible. At the minimum, it was considered a scandal and at the worst, outright treason. Unfortunately for James in this period, the French were trying to eliminate a section of French Protestantism, which at the time was labeled as Huguenots, many of whom in the 16th and 17th and even 18th centuries had left their homes in France to escape persecution. Thousands during this time made their way to Wales, for example, and their horror stories spread about their treatment, some of which may or may not have been accurate, but nonetheless, in the stories they were accurate, and many saw this as a first step in a Catholic plot to overthrow English Protestantism. I mean, if the French were going to do that in their own countries, obviously they would do it in England. Often, this anti-Catholic sentiment was labeled as Popism. Popish plots, a label which was given to anything that was perceived as being led by the Catholic clergy, developed this idea that they were always scheming to take over various countries, and it was extremely popular for centuries in England and its colonies. Many of the, I, these ideas remained strong into the early 20th century in places like America. One of the most popular American books in the 1800s was a hugely anti-Catholic, in quotes, true story about the scandalous goings-on at a nunnery in Montreal. The book was known as The Awful Disclosures of Maria Monk. It is now regarded as a complete work of fiction, but it fanned the flames of prejudice which drove the idea that Catholic leaders were depraved and that their plan was to take over the Christian world again. James removed the Tess Act in 1687, as well as the penal codes which had been used to arrest various religious groups such as the Quakers. This was met with a sense of caution by dissenters and distrust by Anglicans. Yet the king, through his various connections in Wales, tried to ensure that his side won the argument. As a new round of appointments slash elections, let's be honest, these weren't elections as we think of them. They were quite literally just appointments that were being made amongst the various nobility, the agreement that someone would represent them in the parliament. There was no election by the people. There was no responsibility to the people, if we're being blunt. So all of these things came down to nobles nominating nobles. The monarch wanted these members of parliament to commit to the repeal of these acts and continued loyalty to the crown in order to gain support for the king, in order to build his idea of what tolerance would look like. Of these magistrates he called to this meeting, 320 in total, only about half showed up. Many offered excuses that were, to say the least, flimsy. Everything from, I'm a bit sick, to, I was going to travel, but I was thrown from my horse, so I could not come. It just made me too sad. 
I have to stay home to protect against flooding. These kind of commitment wobbling led to this endeavor falling apart. It should have likely have been a warning to James, but he obstinately persisted. He loaded every level of government, both nationally and locally, with his supporters. His perspective was tolerance, but by force. He would do whatever needed to be done, be it fair or foul, to obtain his desire to manufacture a space for Catholicism in the kingdom. It makes sense that this would be tremendously popular amongst the Catholic parts of, say, Ireland, but in Protestant Wales, it was not well received. James continued into the spring of 1688, seeking dominion over the country at the height of absolutism. This was a period where the idea of an absolute monarch, someone who ruled unfettered by popular support and by parliaments or legislatures, was popular. The Sun King of France, the Prussian monarchs, all kind of led to this understanding and belief that they were appointed by God obviously because they'd been born to rule, and thus, as representatives of God on earth, they themselves should be respected as his true representative until the new kingdom came. And so thus, their perspective was that the king had absolute right to do whatever he wanted. James, of course, seeing this on the continent, believed in it and felt that he also should be obeyed. Unfortunately for him, that is not the way this worked. It hadn't worked like that since the 12th century, not at least since John and the Magna Carta. And realistically, it was never going to work that way. So with that ideal in mind, however, he tried to force his will on the church. One that he did not worship in or believe in or even think was divinely led. In April of 1688, James reissued the Declaration of Indulgence. The Declaration of Indulgence was initiated by Charles II as an attempt to extend religious liberty to the Protestant nonconformists and Roman Catholics by suspending the execution of the penal laws that had punished those that were considered to be problematic by the Church of England. Charles had issued the declarations on March 15th 1672, but he was forced to recant it and the test acts were put in place instead, a much more severe version of what would amount to tests of faith for anyone to be appointed to any level in the public government. Well, James once again returned to this idea of the concept of these declarations of indulgence. Subsequently, ordering the Anglican clergy to read it in their churches at least twice. When seven bishops, including the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Bishop of St. Asaph, William Lloyd, submitted a petition requesting a reconsideration of the king's religious policies, they were, rather than listened to, arrested and charged with sedition, libel, and then sent to the Tower of London. No one would question this monarch and one appointed by God to rule over them. With the dissenters taken care of, James likely felt emboldened even more, and so that when his 
son was born, the first male heir after two daughters, this then created yet another thing for him to look forward to as a continuation of his reign, but sent fear down the backs of most Anglicans. The idea of a Catholic king with a Catholic queen was pretty bad enough, but the idea that the heir would be baptized Catholic, that this old dynasty might become Catholic, well, at that point, all hell broke loose. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siècle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. In the years leading up to this, James's only possible successors had been his two Protestant daughters, something that gave solace to those who had tired of his pro-Catholic agenda. Now, however, the prince's birth opened up the possibility of a permanent Roman Catholic dynasty, something that many in the country were not prepared to allow. The birth of a male heir had in the past created scenes of joy around the kingdom. Often candles were lit in their honor. Prayers were said. Parties were held. This was considered a time of celebration, as you can imagine. Instead of that candles were not lit, parties were definitely not being held, but people were talking. Even in conservative and Stuart-defending Wales, this was a bridge they were not going to cross. 250 years after the break with Rome, Welsh society was not about to go back, or realistically tolerate any of those Catholics who might have dominion over them. The arrest of the seven bishops had not helped the monarch either, 
Far from putting a bow on the troublemakers, it drew sympathy, something that most rational-thinking people could see. These mild protests were the early modern equivalent of a strongly worded letter from an interest group. To suddenly arrest them, especially when one of them was the Archbishop of Canterbury, you were not exactly showing this tolerance that you claimed that you were so positive about. So many of the Anglicans and dissenters did something that no one could have predicted over the years previous of their various disputes and civil wars. They united in their opinion of the king. King James II had done something no one in the kingdom since Henry broke with Rome in the mid-1500s had got either of the sides to do. They now felt they needed each other and they needed to work together. On June 30th, the presiding judges who were managing the court hearing for the seven bishops found them not guilty and freed them. This outraged the king, who fired two of them immediately. Unknown to James, the same day a group of seven nobles made their way to the Netherlands to convince their leader, a stalwart Protestant, William of Orange, to take the throne. Or at least, that's the story. Their key reason for reaching out to William was that he was seen as the next best candidate for the English crown. His mother was a Stuart, a sister of James, and he was married to his cousin, the oldest of James's surviving daughters, Mary. Both were staunch Protestants, and Mary, like her sister Anne, had been raised Anglican. William had been a thorn in the side of the French for years, and at this point had fought wars against them and the English to maintain the Dutch Republic. Negotiations with William had fallen into his lap at a perfect time. William had known he and Mary were best positioned to take advantage of this issue in England. These disputes, far from making things difficult, actually opened a way for these two to try and take the crown. Few saw a Republican return in England, but... They also were tiring of this jumped-up Catholic, and in their perspective, moving these Stuarts over was just something that would be very easily done. The one thorny issue was that James had an heir, and William could possibly be seen as simply a pretender should he attempt to capture the throne. So the nobles, seeking to convince William and eventually the public, that Prince James was not actually a legitimate child, but rather one who'd been snuck in, in quotes, to act as their baby. In other words, setting up an heir who wasn't really an heir made it easily justifiable, and the fact that they were giving William a reason to come as an invitation instead of a invasion, something that would be very key. The fact that even then this, their time, this whole idea about Prince James was little believed shows that they were grasping for anything to overthrow King James and the agenda he was angling to achieve. For William, it just happened to align with his own purposes as previously in 1687, to gain the favor of English Protestants, William had wrote a public letter to the people of England where he expressed his disapproval in James's pro-Roman Catholic policy of religious tolerance. Make no mistake, William knew what he was doing. 
The propaganda war was on, and it was just a matter of the right timing, which appeared with the birth of the prince. William would lean on this narrative of his invitation to take the kingdom. The letter included the following request from these seven nobles. In quotes, We have great reason to believe we shall every day in worse condition than we are, and less able to defend ourselves, and therefore we do earnestly wish we might be so happy as to find a remedy before it is too late for us to contribute to our own deliverance. The people are in general dissatisfied with the present conduct of the government in relation to their religious liberties and properties, all of which have been greatly invaded, and they are in such expectation of their prospects being daily worse that your highness may be assured there are nineteen parts of twenty of the people throughout the kingdom who are desirous for a change and who, we believe, would willingly contribute to it if they had such a protection to countenance their rising as would secure them from being destroyed. In other words, come on over, almost everybody agrees you would make a better king than James. The die was cast, and William, with an invasion fleet that did not seem too dissimilar to what his namesake had done in 1066, landed with the last successful invasion of a foreign army in England. Knowing how this would look, few historians believe the so-called previous letter was done as a anything other than a cover for William. He was not a foreign invader, they would argue, but rather a heralded heir to the throne who had been invited, maybe even commanded, to take his place, to oust this so-called monarch and his Catholic progeny. You can make such things sound very necessary if you couch it in the right propaganda tilt. Luckily for William, when his forces did arrive in November of 1688, population was ready to welcome him. Support for King James melted away, and many nobles immediately threw in with William, leaving little doubt where their loyalties lied. The king did at first attempt to resist William, but he saw the likelihood to succeed were diminishing by the day. His loyalist nobles were crossing over to William. He sent, eventually, representatives to negotiate with William, but secretly he did attempt to flee on December 11th, throwing the great seal of England into the Thames on his way. He was discovered and brought back to London by a group of fishermen, and he was allowed, eventually, to leave for France in a second escape on December 23rd. William had permitted James to leave the country, not wanting to make him a martyr for the Roman Catholic cause. It was in his interest for James to be perceived as having left the country of his own accord, rather than being forced or frightened into fleeing. James's role as king was over, and Wales now had another steward. The right religious one this time. King William III now reigned with his wife, Queen Mary, who were now joint rulers. This joint reign would be necessary to paper over any challenge as the former king and his son tried to regain their place. For now, the kingdom would no longer be ruled by a Catholic, and Wales would remain staunchly on board with its new Stuart king as this new century dawned. 
and a new age began in the kingdom that will eventually be called the United Kingdom. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod or on Facebook at facebook.com for such Welsh History Podcast as well. If you'd like to assist this podcast by helping us purchase materials for research, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. Thank you all for listening. Have a great week. Take care. Bye-bye. Welsh History Podcast is a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find more information on them, you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.